Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Behind every great song is a great writer. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth interviews with the accomplished and influential writers and composers behind some of those great songs, from the well-known to the ones you should know. On each episode, we feature a different writer sharing his or her insights into the creative process, their approach to the craft, and the stories behind the songs, from the hits to some of the lesser-known deep cuts. Whether you're a songwriter, a music lover, or just a fan of pop culture, be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes so you don't miss out on a single episode. We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think by sharing your thoughts at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Edge of the World from John Oates' 2014 album, Good Road to Follow. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer John Oates is one half of the team that both Billboard magazine and the Recording Industry Association of America dubbed the most successful duo in rock history. He and longtime collaborator Daryl Hall signed with Atlantic Records in 1972, but didn't break through with a major single until they moved to RCA and scored a top-five pop hit with Sarah Smile in 1974. Penned by Hall & Oates, it was the beginning of a long string of top-40 hits. As a songwriter, John Oates is best known for co-writing classic titles including She's Gone, You Make My Dreams, I Can't Go For That, Maneater, Adult Education, and Out of Touch. He is also the co-writer of Electric Blue, a 1988 top 10 hit by Icehouse. Additionally, his songs have been covered by Nancy Wilson, Brian McKnight, Boys to Men, Shirley Manson, Nelly Furtado, The Bird and the Bee, Rumor, and many others. Daryl Hall and John Oates were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2005 and were co-recipients of the prestigious BMI Icon Award in 2008. With six albums certified gold and seven certified platinum, their successes as songwriters and performers earned them a place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2014. Oates has released a half dozen solo albums since 1999 and is signed to Warner Music's Nashville division, where he now makes his home. John, welcome to Songcraft. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, your most recent album is the aforementioned Good Road to Follow from 2014, which is really a, uh, a collection of three five-song EPs. And y- you have a stellar list of co-writers on that record. Um, I think people like Vince Gill, uh, Tommy Sims, who co-wrote Eric Clapton's Change the World, uh, Jerry Douglas, who is in Alison Krauss's band and, and is a bluegrass legend in his own right, uh, Nathan Chapman, who's best known as Taylor Swift's producer, and, and even a guy like Craig Wiseman, who's written countless country hits like Tim McGraw's Live Like You Were Dying or Kenny Chesney's The Good Stuff. Um, but I feel like these collaborations stretched both you and your co-writers uh, beyond the music that you're each most known for, which is probably the sign of a really successful meeting of the minds. Uh, when you get together with people like that to write, say, for the very first time, uh, do you have a sense of what you'd like to try to create with that person, or do you tend to just let it unfold organically? Very good question, and a, and a big question to start off with. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it's kind of, and without sounding too hippy dippy about it, it's it's kind of a magical process in that you you end up creating something. You know, on a good day, and when all all the stars align, you end up creating something from nothing. Right. You you latch on to an idea or a concept, or you know, it could be um, you know. The, the deep inner emotions, or it could be something very mundane, like just a, uh, a a pass, you know, a passing phrase that you might overhear someone say, and you try to create something that is a it, that connects with people personally, but at right. the same time uh, has a universal appeal, and perhaps talks about something that's just bigger than, yeah. than that. Um, 
And it's, it really is interesting. Every collaboration is different, yet everyone is the same. Um, yeah. And by that I mean uh, everyone's personality dictates how the session, the songwriting session will go. Um, people have different techniques and different, uh, you know, kind of hardware and software that they rely on to make it happen. Right. And at the same time, there always seems to be this, this thread of similarity in that um, songwriters tend to uh, just open up to ideas and bat around ideas and, and in, in an environment, an in a collaborative environment that's free from fear and free from criticism. Mm, yeah, so yeah. When, when you create that, that, that kind of welcoming uh, creative environment, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you can throw out the, 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 what, what might seem to be the dumbest idea or the most, an idea that's on a tangent to what perhaps you're really trying to do, but that tangential um, effect can somehow bring you back around yeah. to the original, you know, where you're really going. So right. it's a really complex and interesting thing. I, I really love it, and I, and I find that everyone brings a little bit something to the table, and at the same time it's always, in, in a way, familiar. Yeah. Well, three of the songs on Good Road to Follow were written with uh, Jim Lauderdale, who's written songs like The Dixie Chicks, Hole in My Head, Patty Lovelace's Halfway Down, uh, a ton of hits for George Strait, including uh, We Really Shouldn't Be Doing This, What Do You Say to That, I Gotta Get to You, Twang, and so many others. Um, but Jim is really an underrated uh, but fantastic country bluegrass and Americana singer-songwriter who's done over two dozen albums of his own as an artist. Um, but he really preserves that old-school country music vibe, even uh, you know, wearing the rhinestone nudie suits on stage and keeping that whole tradition alive. And I would have never imagined uh, Jim Lauderdale and John Oates as a likely songwriting combo. Um, why do you think it works so well? <laughs> uh, you know, we may be the odd couple of uh, songwriting uh, collaborations, <laughs> right. but only on the surface. Um, Jim has probably become my best friend here in Nashville over the years. I met him uh, quite some time ago um, uh, when he was playing with Elvis Costello at Telluride Bluegrass. Right. When we began to write, uh, we, you know, interestingly enough, neither of us wanted to go, we, we didn't want to stay in, in the genres that we're both known for. We wanted sure. to do something different. Mm. And Jim, even though he's known for his bluegrass and country, he is, he has very wide, eclectic taste. Mm. Um, he loves everything from the Beatles to uh, R&B to blues and all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, as do as do most songwriters anyway. Sure. Um, they're very open-minded, and Jim is very extremely open-minded. So we we kind of just riff off each other, and we laugh a lot, and we we come up with these things. Like we wrote a few swing songs together, things that mm. I would have never written on my own, and perhaps yeah. he wouldn't have. Um, so we just, we, we really have this really free-flowing, creative uh, thing that we do. And, you know, sometimes, you know, Jim will kind of uh, drive the bus, and sometimes I drive the bus a little more. And yeah. and it's, it's very, like I said, there's no rules to it, and that's what makes it so unique. I, I really love, I love Jim. I love all his recordings, and I love uh, I love writing with him. Yeah, that's great. That seems to be kind of the, the best-case scenario when, when you look at collaborating. Um, when you When you create something that would not otherwise have existed from either one of you individually. You know, it's like an alchemy. Exactly. I, I want to hear a little bit of different kind of groove sometime, which you wrote with Jim. A different kind of groove sometime.
You know, in the first 30 seconds of that song, I hear country guitar licks, I hear funk, soul, and a little blues. I get the sense that you're a guy who draws from a pretty deep well of musical inspiration. Tell us a little bit about your earliest musical influences. Well, you're right about that. I, um, you know, I had an entire musical life before I met Daryl when I was right. 18 or 19. Um, and, and people don't realize that, of course, because they always identify me with the Hall & Oates songs and the hits, of course. Sure. But honestly, you know, I started playing guitar at six years old in a small town in Pennsylvania. I started playing... Uh, First songs I played and, and accompanied myself with were, were country music um, because it was easy. It was Interesting. Simple, like three I played, uh, you know, Don Gibson, Oh Lonesome Me. I played some Buddy Holly songs. I played yeah. um, Everly Brothers songs, things like that, Rockabilly. Um, and, of course, you know, I immediately gravitated toward Chuck Berry and, you know, the simplicity of what he was doing right. was something I could latch on to as a little kid. Um, and, and, you know, I'd come, I, I was born at a very unique time. Um, I was born in the late 40s, so uh, my life kind of parallels the evolution of rock and roll, because by the time I was five or six, rock and roll had just begun. Sure. And um, so I was aware of it. One of the first uh, live music uh, things I've ever, I ever saw was I saw Bill Haley in the Comets. Oh, wow. In Philadelphia in 1954. Yeah. Uh, doing, doing, like, Rock Around the Clock. So, um, so, so really, you know... I, I had that that early roots rock uh, influence um, in um, in the '60s, mid '60s, when the folk revival started happening. I had a friend who had an older brother who went off to college in North Carolina, and when he came back, he had brought all these um, folk records, um, everything from um, you know Joan Baez to Dave Van Ronk to uh, right. Doc Watson, Mississippi John Hurt. Yeah. Um, you know, all, all these really amazing, and I began to, you know, of course, I was already playing the guitar now for a number of years. I began to uh, absorb these records and learn, try to learn how to play them, uh, finger picking, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of Appalachian styles, bluegrass, uh, Delta blues, all that. Yeah. And that became really who I was. I still played in a rhythm section. I had a band from the time I was in twelve. I was twelve years old straight through uh, high school. Right. And. So I was, I, I kind of, in a way, I'm doing exactly, I was doing exactly what I'm still doing. Um, yeah. On one hand, I played R&B, I wore suits and played in a band with horns. And on the other side, I, I played in coffee houses with an acoustic guitar and played traditional American music and blues and, and things like that. In, in what ways did, did the fact that you, I mean, I know you grew up in, in North Wales, Pennsylvania, uh, outside of Philadelphia, and mm-hmm. in what ways did just with the whole the Philly sound and, and the street corner doo-wop kind of thing, and even a, a vibrant folk scene, I mean, in what ways did just your geography there also influence your development as a, as a musician and songwriter? Oh, it's absolutely, it was absolutely, uh, you know, paramount to, to and essential to, to who I became as a musician. Um, I listened to Philadelphia Radio, which was great rock and roll radio. I listened to the R&B station, WHAT, WDAS. I listened to gospel. I listened to, so I went to the Uptown Theater and saw all the greatest uh, R&B groups of the of the early and mid '60s perform live. At the same time, I was going to the Philadelphia Folk Festival on the second fret and seeing all these amazing, uh, you know, American traditional performers who were just being rediscovered and reintroduced. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so really it was almost like the perfect storm of, of, of American roots music all sure. happening at the same time. It's always interesting to me, you know, everyone or most people love to listen to music and will stand in an audience and listen to a show. But it's a certain kind of person that then goes home that night and tries to write a song. Um, 
So you were talking about your earliest musical development, the things that made you want to be a musician. I'm, I'm curious to know, when did you write your first song, and, and do you remember what that song was? What can you tell us about it? It was, I believe, 7th or 8th grade. I can't remember. Um, it was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wow. And um, we were assigned to write a poem in English class. Uh, and because the Cuban Missile Crisis was so, you know, so... It freaked everyone out, and it was so, you know, kind of a big deal right. um, that we thought maybe, you know, this was the end of, the, of civilization as we know it. I wrote about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the teacher uh, said to me that he, he gave me some real great positive reinforcement and said that was really well done. And it was really great for me as a young person who enjoyed writing. I always enjoyed writing anyway. And it gave me that, get, that kickstart to say, wow, hey, maybe I can do this. Right. And at the same time, being a guitar player, I thought, well, you know, Bob Dylan was putting topical songs to music. Bill sure. Oak was doing it. Uh, Tom Paxton was doing it. And I thought, well, here's, you know, here's a topical idea that I wrote as a poem, as a standalone poem. Why not try to put it to music? So I did. Um, and it was a folk, folky kind of song. I don't really recall how it went, really, and I never, right. of course, never recorded it. Yeah. Um, but that was it. Uh, that was the beginning. Um, mm. And then, of course, later on, when I got to high school, I wrote a song uh, for the band that I was in that called I Need Your Love, which we managed to record in 1967 um, wow. and do a single that came out in Actually, ironically, at this exact same time that Daryl's group uh, released his first single. Right. And really? that's what brought us together was the fact that we both had made records at the same time with two different groups. Yeah, I, I understand that the, that your group, The Masters, um, was playing a gig at the Adelphi Ballroom in Philadelphia on the, on the same bill with his group, The Temptones, uh, when, you, when you ran into Daryl. Um, share with us that story of, of how the two of you uh, first met one another and, and then how you began making music together. Idea would be, you know, in those days, you went out and you lip synced your single, right, uh, to the to the record, basically, yeah, um, like a top of the pops kind of thing, or something. Exactly, and um, it was basically an R and B show, and we were backstage in this little waiting room area all together, uh, and a big gang fight broke out, and oh. um, we uh, we basically beat it down the elevator as quickly as possible and just <laughs> left. Yeah. Uh, when, when that happened, we were thrown together in the elevator, and we were both. You know, we were both kind of aware of each other, but we hadn't met. And, and we went, uh, you know, uh, we were both going to Temple University. And um, my, the two of the guys in my group got drafted into Vietnam. The group fell apart. I, I joined Daryl's group as a backup, as a, as a guitar player, as a kind of a backup guitar player. Right. And then Daryl's group subsequently broke up, and Daryl and I gravitated toward each other. There's, there's no absence of drama in these early stories. First song's about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then you meet Daryl because of a gang fight <laughs> behind a show. It's amazing. Well, you can't, you can't make this shit up. So, you know. <laughs> I know, right? Um, I've read that you were actually uh, kind of somewhat forced to move in with Daryl at one point, which kind of fostered further collaboration between the two of you. What happened there? When I graduated from college in 1970, I decided that one of my dreams was to go to Europe. I'd never been to Europe, and I wanted to do the whole backpacking, busking thing. Um, All right. During that period of time, I had a little apartment in Philadelphia, and um, 
I subletted it to Daryl's sister and her boyfriend. Uh, and when I came back, I guess they hadn't paid the rent. And um, the landlord had put a padlock on the door. With, oh, my gosh. With what, what few little belongings I had in there. <laughs> right. Um, oh, jeez. So Daryl, I guess, felt somewhat responsible for his sister and, <laughs> and said, hey, why don't you just come and share this upper room in, in this little house that, I, that he was in. Yeah. At the time, Daryl was kind of disillusioned with what he was doing in terms of working. He was doing some studio work. He was playing some bands that weren't really happening. Uh, I really wasn't doing much at all. I was playing in a little blues band casually and, you know, just basically scuffling around looking for things to do. And little by little, because we were sharing the same house, we began to kind of play songs for each other. Mm. And we started with some original songs, and that's basically how it started. Now, and Daryl primarily played piano, and you primarily played guitar. In what ways did collaborating with someone on a different instrument uh, shape your approach to songwriting? I actually learned, you know, because Daryl was predominantly a guitar player, uh, I mean, a, a piano player, um, his, a lot of his songs and voicings and, and chord changes and things were really dictated by his piano style. Mm-hmm. And me being a kind of a folky guitar player, I had to adapt and learn and evolve as a guitar player to accompany him and then, on the other hand, um, because a piano is not suited to sitting on the porch and picking and, and <laughs> kind of casually jamming, um, Daryl picked up a mandolin. Hmm. And because he's such a good musician, began to self-teach himself mandolin. just wow. um, So he could sit around and jam and do more of the traditional stuff that I would do. Yeah. So we kind, of, we kind of fed each other influences, you know. I learned from Daryl's piano style. He learned from my uh, traditional American stuff that I knew. I introduced him to, to Doc Watson and the Delmore Brothers and, and, and Mississippi John Hurt and things. Yeah. And uh, he introduced me to a much more sophisticated, um, you know, kind of way of, of playing harmonically and and uh, and things like that. So it was kind of this coming together of two worlds. Right. But at the same time, we had this common thread, and that common thread was, was urban R&B, which we both both had a handle on it at yeah. the same time. Well, I, I've noticed that all your albums with Daryl are credited to Daryl Hall and John Oates. Uh, even though everyone refers to the duo as Hall and Oates, uh, that's not actually the name of the band. Um, have, have the two of you always just used your own names, or in those early days did you try some some different band names on for size when you were first putting the act together? No, we were. We, it actually was a very, it was a, a very conscious decision to do that. If you look at every one of our albums, as you just mentioned, it says Daryl Hall and John Oates. We we look at ourselves as two individuals working together. Mm, yeah. We don't look at ourselves as a um, as this kind of duo who's bound together, um, you know, through hell and high water. Yeah. Um, and that, that has allowed us to evolve as as individuals. It's allowed us to have individual careers. Allowed us to be individuals, um, and it was very conscious. We we thought of it early, early on. Well, you know, Tommy Mottola is one of the more influential music executives of the last several decades, uh, having mentored Carly Simon and John Mellencamp and Shakira, and of course Mariah Carey, to whom he was married when he was heading Sony Music. But his his first major career breakthrough was managing you and Daryl. Um, and I'm really curious how you guys uh, first hooked up with Tommy and, and what he did for your career early on. Well, interestingly enough, uh, Tommy, when we first met Tommy Mottola, he was a song plugger at Chapel Music in, in New York City. Right. We, had, uh, we were working with a, um, a guy in Philadelphia who was a producer and an entrepreneur, and um, we kind of were signed to him as staff writers. 
he ended up selling his publishing catalog to Chapel Music. As we played our new song in the Chapel Music office for some of the executives, Tommy Matola was in the room. And uh, after we did it, he said, hey, man, I like your songs. Um, what are you guys doing? Like, who's your manager? Like, what are you, what are you up to? Uh, and we just said, look, we don't have a manager. We, we'd like to make a record eventually, but yeah. right now this is what we're doing. And he said, well, I'm your manager. That's, <laughs> I mean, basically, that's what he said. Yeah. He said, I'm going to be your manager. And so basically, in the first uh, year or so, um, he managed us out, uh, from the Chapel Music offices while he was actually working for Chapel. Wow. Huh. Um, just by making phone calls and things. And yeah. little by little, of course, we left Philadelphia and we untied ourselves from the guy we were assigned with. And we um, broke out on our own and moved to New York and uh, and got a, got a recording contract. Yeah. yeah, and you guys signed with Atlantic and released your first album, Whole Oats, in 1972, which had the song, Lily, Are You Happy? Lily, laughing lady your smile disguise the tears inside Lily, Lily, lonely lately Only silhouette you're happy side You give yourself to men who take your You know, Daryl sang the lead on a lot of the well-known songs, but you handled the vocal duties on this track and two others from that debut album. I'm wondering, how did you guys figure out who would sing what? Well, it usually had to do with who initiated the idea um, or who was best suited to do it. Um, as the years went on, of course, Daryl's voice became synonymous with the Hall Notes hits, and he, you know, obviously, he's a great singer, and you know, you can't. You can't uh, argue with that. I mean, there's been some songs that I have initiated, like Out of Touch and Man Eater and stuff, that, you know, even though I initiated them, I realized in the end that with the, you know, the, with the sound of the 80s and what was going on with our career, it would be, it was more, it was more, it was a smart business move to have Daryl sing hmm. those songs. Hmm. Uh, so I made conscious decisions uh, like that along the way to uh, really, I mean, I guess, I guess for the good of, good of, of myself and the group yeah. really yeah and i think as a songwriter you know having the ability to kind of set ego aside and and say okay in this case what's going to best serve the song um you know i think a lot of writers you know m might not realize how how crucial that is well i think you you hit the nail on the head when you prefaced what you said by saying that you have to serve the song mm. it's absolutely critical that's the song dictates everything yeah. Well, you know, and that, that first album on Atlantic was not a big commercial success, but you guys returned with a second LP, Abandoned Luncheonette, in 1973, which included the song uh, She's Gone. The thing that I think is so interesting about that is in the single only went to number 60, but it still wound up bringing you your first number one record as a songwriter when the group Tavares covered it and took it to the top of the R&B chart. She's gone. Now, I, I read an interview with, with Daryl where he was asked about She's Gone, and he said, it's certainly the best song that John and I ever wrote together. 
Um, and similarly, I've, I've heard you say that the Abandoned Luncheonette album may be the greatest thing that, that you and Daryl ever did. Now, this was, of course, before the, the huge string of hits. So what is it about that song and, and that album and that period of your career as writers and performers that was so special to you guys? We were at a place in our lives where we so many things had changed uh, and evolved. We had moved from Philadelphia to New York. We had a record contract. We had gone on tour for the first time behind the first album. Um, we had the mentorship and, and the, uh, the the skill of Arif Martin at the controls at the helm of, of our recording, recording in the legendary Atlantic Studios where so many legendary records were made, um, surrounded by some of the greatest musicians in New York at the time. Um, it, it was like the perfect storm of creativity. Uh, wow. These things don't always happen, you know. This is a some some of these moments are once in a lifetime moments, and there was a, a creative energy that was just unstoppable, uh, combined with youth and enthusiasm and 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 experience, all combining together. Well, you did one more studio album for Atlantic before you moved over to RCA, and then scored your first big hit as artists with Sarah Smile, which climbed to number four on the Billboard when Pop I Chart. Feel cold, you warm me. And when I feel I can't go on, you come and hold me. It's you and me forever. Sarah, smile. I oh, want you smile for me, Sarah. Now, the Sarah in that song was Sarah Allen, who we had first heard about in the song Las Vegas Turnaround. And she was someone that really kind of became a fixture in your lives and careers. But she was also Daryl's longtime girlfriend. So obviously this song was a personal statement for him. But you're both writers on it. So just tell us a little bit about the nuts and bolts of your approach to collaborating. Would you guys sit down in a room together and work on a really personal idea like this from start to finish? Or would maybe one of you start with the idea beforehand and work on it a bit and then bring it together for you guys to finish? Daryl had uh, basically, I mean, really, you know, the, the, the reality is that's a real Daryl Hall song. Hmm. I collaborated with him on the lyrics only. Um, he had written the music, and he was basically singing, you know, Sarah, smile, he had the hook, he had pretty much the, the melodies and, and the chords were all something that he had, he had already done. Um, and I came in, uh, you know, basically to help finish the lyrics. Yeah. And that we did together. We wrote, we wrote the lyrics together. Um, so, you know, you, you, it's, it's that kind of, you know, the collaborations can be, they could be totally 50-50, like on a song like She's Gone and mm-hmm. a few others, but they could also be, you know, very one-sided, uh, where the other person was just helping, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've heard you say that sometimes you and Daryl would, would sing vowel sounds and nonsense words while that you while you were creating a song, and then you would go back and, and put the lyrics in later. Um, how did setting up those musical parameters sort of hone your chops as a lyricist well you know that's it's it's almost negative it's almost a negative um approach to Hmm. songwriting uh, to lyric writing it's Hmm. it's very hard to do yeah and it paints you're almost painting yourself in a corner before you can you got to fit a melody Um, now with a lyric yeah exactly and you have to have to say something that means something right (laughs) um but but on on a positive note it uh, creates a lyric and a flow uh, of the words that, that rolls off the tongue in a way that no other, you know, by just singing the vowel sounds that sound good, whether they're nonsense words or syllables, um, 
you all, all of a sudden have this very melodious and very uh, seamless uh, lyrical flow that happens. Now, the hard part is now making it actually mean something. Well, your second RCA album, Bigger Than Both of Us, it yielded the duo's first number one single, Rich Girl, which Daryl wrote solo. And then the follow-up single from that album, Back Together Again, was a top 30 hit that you wrote solo and on which you sang lead. Inspired that song. Um, what happened was I was coming back on a flight and I was sitting next to Frankie Valley, yeah. and uh, Frankie Valley was telling me how he had had some bad times, and uh, but he, you know, he persevered and he feels like he was coming out the other side, and that's where the title came from. And it's he's back together again, meaning uh, he is mentally back together again. Uh, he's pulling, he's pulling his life together. That's what that song's actually about. Wow, Frankie um, Valley was the inspiration. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, and so the song was written, but here again, it's crafted in a way that to the average casual listener, if you don't really pay attention to the lyrics very much, right. um, you'll, you'll feel like it's about getting back together with whoever, your lover, your wife, your girlfriend, whatever. Um, but it's not. Wow. Yeah, it's cool. Well, after uh, Bigger Than Both of Us, you guys did four more albums on RCA, but uh, it wasn't until your seventh record for that label, the 1980 LP Voices, uh, that you experience major chart hits again with the songs Kiss on My List and You Make My Dreams. Dreams is credited to, to you, Daryl, and Sarah Allen, and it has a really unique energy. And I, I believe that this was the album where you guys kind of took the reins of your own production and started using your own band in the studio. Um, and I'm interested in what led to that decision and what difference you think that made in sort of setting you up for this most successful run of hits in the 80s. It made all the difference. Uh, it was the really the catalyst that, that 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 made the '80s happen for us. Um, you're you're correct in saying that we we wanted to record with our band. That was uh, very important to us. We knew there was something more. We needed to. We need, you know every time we would play on tour, people would always come up to us and say, well, "You guys are better live than your records." <laughs> we thought, well, if we're better live than our records, why don't we play, make our records sound like the way we sound live? Right. And the only way to do that is to record with your own band. Yeah. And so we, we needed to evolve to that point to get to that point. Um, and that's what we did on, on the Voices album. And not to mention, that was the first album that was self-produced, that we produced ourselves without, uh, you know, without someone else. Well, uh, John, even though you and Daryl are accomplished musicians, you were never afraid to incorporate new technology, including plenty of synthesizers and drum machines, into your music uh, throughout the 80s. 
Why do you think you guys were so open to explore n new musical options in that way, especially when your background had been kind of in some organic folk and soul type of things? You know, to us, an instrument is a tool to achieve expression. It doesn't matter what it is. If there was something that could help us create new sounds and express ourselves, we were going to try it. Here again, you're going back to the earlier part of the conversation, to serve the song. Right. Yeah, so we exactly. were really, you know, kind of, we, we were always open-minded to things like yeah. that. Yeah. And I think at the same time you were embracing these technologies, you also were working with these high-caliber musicians who were a part of uh, your band. I'm thinking guys like uh, G.E. Smith, you know, who was your guitarist for five or mm -hmm. six years before taking over the house band on Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. And that, that balance between uh, musicianship and technology gave you guys this sound that was just uh, the right time and the right place to bridge kind of the disparate worlds of, of new wave and, and disco. And it obviously... I mean, it caught on and, and appealed to so many different people so that by the time the Private Eyes album was released in 1981, you guys were, were major stars. Um, uh, the single I Can't Go For That was another song credited to you, Daryl, and, and Sarah, and that became the first number one pop hit that you had uh, as a songwriter. I think this song is pretty unique in that it actually went to number one on the pop chart and number one on the R&B chart. Um, talk a little bit about what Sarah brought to the songwriting dynamic with you and Daryl and why you think uh, that your music had such cross-genre appeal. Well, you know, Sarah, Sarah Allen was not a musician, and she... Um, she kind of learned how to write lyrics through osmosis, through by just by literally being in the apartment or the house yeah. while we were reading. And because she was there all the time, little by little, she began to just, you know, from the other room, she would just throw out an idea, basically. Um, she just thought in terms of a woman's point of view. Yeah. And hmm. you have this woman's point of view uh, infused with the guy's point of view, and I think it gave our songs a more universal appeal. Yeah. So after the platinum albums Voices and Private Eyes came the double platinum H2O, which included the smash hit Maneater. Now, that song stayed at number one for four weeks, but I understand it actually started out with a different groove. Yeah, it started out as a, as a reggae song. Wow. Um, I, uh, I came up with the idea based on a, a girl who was incredibly uh, beautiful but had a filthy mouth, a filthy vocabulary, <laughs> and she was very aggressive. And um, that was just the thing, that was just the spark that got the song going. And um, then I played it for Daryl, and he, he dug it, but he said, man, he goes, reggae just... Is not that's not our thing, man. We just yeah. we just don't do do that. And he, and he came up with the more Motown kind of feel for that, uh, which ended up being the groove that, that ended up being that the song is based on. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and as we began to write the song, we we you know the jumping off point was the girl who inspired the idea. But the, the song is actually about New York City. Uh -huh. It's about New York City in the '80s. It's about greed and and 
and people who want more and aren't satisfied with with uh, you know too much is not enough you know kind mm. of thing. Yeah. And being chewed up and spit out is really not the girl doing that to a guy. It's the city doing that to, to wow. people who can't handle the pressure. Well, the, the next double platinum album was Big Bam Boom, which uh, included the number one pop hit, uh, Out of Touch. Understand that you originally uh, started working on this song with the idea of pitching it for uh, the stylistics. Um, tell us about that and and how you guys wound up recording it for yourselves instead. Well, um, there was a new home technology task cam that invented this uh, four track cassette deck that you could overdub on. And I got one. I was playing around with it. I had a, a synthesizer. Um, I was playing with those two things and. Um, I used the arpeggiator, um, arpeggiator button, which created this uh, repetitive sound, and one of the sounds was this woodblock tonal sound. Mm, right. um, I hit it uh, when I hit the button and played a key. You know, it had a, you know, this kind of groove went thunk 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 like that, and I started playing melodies, recording it, and then I began to sing, and then I added background vocals and put it together. And at the time we were uh, doing the album, uh, Arthur Baker, who was co-producing with us, he uh, was working with stylistics. So the song sounded like a Philly. It just sounded like a Philly R&B chorus to me. Um, And so I took it into Arthur and played it for him, uh, this little demo that I'd done at home uh, before this uh, recording session began. And he freaked out and said, man, that is, he said, that's a number one record. He said, you and Daryl have to finish that up and we're going to record it. Forget the stylistic. And um, I said, great. Okay, man, you know. And so when Daryl came in and played it for him, and he jumped on board and said, you're right, man, we got to finish this up. And so he and I wrote the verse together. Yeah. Well, after this incredible run of hits you guys have had in the first half of the 80s, I mean, it seemed like you guys were everywhere. These double platinum albums, Live Aid, We Are the World. And then you guys took a break. Um, so why stop at that point when everything you guys were touching was turning to gold or technically was turning platinum? <laughs> well, interesting. Um because we made a conscious decision, and we understood that the only way to go for us at that point was down. Hmm. Um, we we did uh, We Are the World. We did Live Aid. We headlined Live Aid with Mick Jagger. Um, yeah, amazing. We, uh, we played the Apollo Theater with Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin, who were uh, our childhood idols. From the Temptations, uh, yeah. And in a way brought our life full circle uh, in, in some, some way, a cosmic way. And we thought, okay, well, what's our next step? If we release a song that's not number one, in a sense, we we're going to be we're going to be a fa- we've, we would have failed. Mm-hmm. And we knew that having number, if we predicated everything that we did on number one records and record sales, you're doomed to failure. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it, you can't, no one can ever sustain it. Yeah. So we knew that. So instead of trying to to do it and failing, we stepped away and reevaluated everything. And we made an album called uh, Ooh Yeah, which was just basically an album that we needed to make because of contractual obligations. Yeah. And I think we had like a top ten song with uh, with that. 
Um, and then we realized that this was not going in the right direction, and we realized that the mainstream music business was not going to be the place where we were going to have a long-term career. Mm, yeah. So yeah. we basically dropped out, and we made change of season, uh, and then we waited six years or five years, and we made um, Marigold Sky, which was the first independent record. And we realized at that time that we were one of the first kind of established artists to become independent artists. Right, right. And we realized that that was the only way we could sustain our careers, to just do exactly what we wanted to do, right. exactly how we wanted to do it. Yeah. So that really set the tone for everything that followed. And doing that might have seemed, as you said earlier, might have seemed like a, a, a mistake in business-wise, perhaps it was. Um, but in the end, look, look where it led. I mean, yeah. it's 2015 and we're actually touring and right. working and doing amazing things. Uh, yeah. Well, when, and when you guys, when you guys took that, that break, um, you both pursued independent projects, um, including your work as a co-songwriter and backup vocalist on electric blue, which the band ice house took to number seven uh, on the pop chart in 1988. <laughs> you obviously you'd been spending years uh collaborating with daryl or with uh daryl and sarah allen um was it a challenge to to sort of step into a new situation and familiarize yourself with different co-writers and, and different musicians at that point not really um i, I welcomed it i was looking forward to it um, yeah uh it was something i wanted to do uh and you know the collaboration with Ivan davies and the ice house collaboration just was totally casual. Uh, I I met him uh, sitting at the bar at the Mayflower Hotel in New York City. Um, he was just sitting there having a drink, and I was sitting there. We started talking, and I, you know, knew about Ice House, and I said, "Wow, cool band, you know, blah blah blah. What are you up to?" He goes, "Oh, we're going to make an album," and and I said, "Oh, cool." And he said, uh, do you, "You know, when you want to write a song?" And I said, "Sure, man." And he mm. said, "You want to come to Australia?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> Why not? And I went to Australia and spent about a week together and luckily we came out with that that one great song and yeah, uh, yeah. to this day it's one of the biggest songs that's ever been released in australia you know, wow. number one yeah well and you talk about this idea of kind of pulling back from the from the machine so to speak of that huge pop success and and cultivating a path that allows you to do um what you want to do to do things on your terms to express yourself musically in the way that's right for you um and I think of, of a song like Do It For Love, which actually hit number one on the adult contemporary charts in 2002. Um, I feel like that song could really be interpreted as a, a personal statement about why you guys continued to, to make music for so many years through so many changing musical tastes and, and seasons. Was that, was that intended as, as somewhat of a purpose statement for you? Yeah, it was. Um, it was absolutely, it, it was, it, it really was, it came from, uh, it, it actually came from a little bit of a, um, a, a panic, uh, to tell you the <laughs> truth. Um, Daryl had wanted, Daryl was spending a lot of time in England uh, in the early 2000s, late, late 90s. And uh, he had cultivated a group of, of producers and people that 
he thought were really good, and he wanted to try to do something different, um, and he wanted to record in London. So anyway, uh, I got to England, and I basically didn't have any good ideas. Uh, and um, I was like, what? I started, I woke up the morning that I was supposed to meet all these people at the studio. And so uh, my hotel was on the other side of a river from where the studio was, and it was a short walk across the bridge to get to the studio. And uh, I, I was walking over to the studio across this bridge, and I said, and I started like asking myself, like, why am I even here? What, like, this is this kind of messed up. <laughs> and then I said, well, I'm here because I love what I'm doing. Mm, yeah. And I'm here, I'm here for the music. And then when we got together to write, I said, I threw that same idea out there. I said, why are we doing this? Yeah. And, right. And Daryl, of course, immediately latched onto it, loved it, and we we wrote it. We wrote it with Billy Mann, um, and. Uh. Um, and he got into the idea, and we started just throwing out, you do it, you know, we don't do it for money, we don't do it for pride, we don't do it to please somebody else, and it don't feel right, we just do it for ourselves. Wow. And it was a simple idea, but here again, it took on a bigger connotation. Sure. You know, you'll have some songs that are big hits, um, but then there's another level sometimes when a song really kind of enters the public consciousness in a bigger way, and sometimes that happens when a song gets sampled. Um and that's happened a lot with you guys. The hip hop acts have have sampled a ton of your music. Everybody from from Notorious B.I.G. to Kanye to Wu Tang Clan, Two Live Crew, uh, Heavy D. How do you feel about other artists kind of reimagining your songs that way? Um, well, you know, the record and the song are really two different things to me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the record is a moment in time. It's what happens when all those things combine together. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the record. And that's what people, that's what lodges in people's brains is the record they hear on the radio or right. on their record player or CD or whatever. Sure. Um, so, you know, once you've done that, you've made that record. That record exists in its own little universe. Mm -hmm. Whatever people want to do with it afterwards is great. I think it's unique and, and, and very cool. I, I just, um, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate of songwriters' rights, so I want to make sure that the original songwriter always gets credit and gets, you know, gets a piece of the pie, sure. because to me that's only fair. Um, and so as long as the, the business side of it and the copyright, you know, uh, copyright... Uh, rights are, are being upheld, then yeah. I think anybody can do anything they want. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, it, it wasn't until 1999 that you released your first solo album, Funk Shui, consisting primarily of original songs. Why did? Uh, why do you think you waited so long to release your solo debut? Well, because after Daryl and I kind of backed off in the early 90s, um, I had other things I wanted to do. Um, um, if you take it in the context of the time, I had been on the road from 1972 until 1986. Wow. Without stopping. Ever. Uh, and if I wasn't on the road, I was recording and writing. So it was a nonstop work schedule for yeah. all those years. Uh, I felt I had missed out on a lot of stuff. I had a, you know, in, in the late 80s, I had a failed marriage. Um, I wasn't happy with, you know, what was going on in uh, my personal life, and I wasn't ha that happy with, you know, what 
with the, the fact that Daryl, well, I, was, I wasn't ha- unhappy. I was just, Daryl and I just weren't doing anything. Yeah. Right. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do, it was very high on my list, was to, to start a family and to live a, a little bit more uh, settled life, mm. which I couldn't do when I was on the road all this year. Yeah. So I basically moved from the East Coast to Colorado uh, and started over again. Wow. And I consciously started over again with a, a, a complete life change. And in doing so, I met my, my, you know, my wife, who I'm still married to today. We have an 18-year-old son. We built a house. We created a family. Um, and I lived an entirely different life outside of the, the, the music business. Yeah. And uh, it was really important for me to do that. So that's why I did what I did. And that's why it wasn't until my son got a little older and I had established myself in Colorado and I was ready to kind of jump back in. And when I did, I, you know, it took me that long to kind of figure it out. Yeah. Well, in and in terms of your legacy, you know, a lot of times people have a tendency, I think, to sort of exalt the person who is perceived as the leader of a musical group. And I was thinking about um, a Saturday Night Live sketch that aired in the late 90s. It was kind of a, a parody of, of Behind the Music, and it very much uh, downplayed your contributions to... Uh, your partnership with Daryl. And kind of in the same vein, there's a, a comedy duo that's called Garfunkel and Oates, which I think is kind of intended to to convey the same idea. Um, does that perception bother you? No, it's never bothered me. Uh, people probably think it does. Um, I, I, have a, I have a huge respect for Daryl's uh, talent. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you can't hold, hold back talent. Mm-hmm. If you do, it's like trying to contain... Uh, a dam that's going to burst. And hmm. uh, I've never been one to do that. I, I think that, you know, he has every right to be who he is and, and do what he does best. Yeah. Um, and I made a lot of uh, compromises for the sake of, of, the, of the team, you know, kind of took one for the team in a lot of ways. Yeah. But uh, I, you know, I don't put my, I don't wrap, my self-worth is not wrapped up in what people think of me. Yeah. My self-worth is wrapped up in what, my family thinks of me, cool. um, and people who actually know me think of me. Yeah. Public perception is all about PR and marketing and, and <laughs> right. photos and, and stuff. So I'm just not that that kind of guy. Um, and so in, in, to answer your question, uh, it's no big deal to me. Yeah. You know, and I would imagine that you did the MTV thing, you did the big pop culture thing, you know, the the being a hit songwriter. And like you say, you can't find your value as a as a human in those type of things that that fade away um by the same token people um appreciate being recognized for their art and there's a difference between sort of the popularity contest uh the pr as you put it and the art and in 2005 you guys were inducted into the songwriters hall of fame um Talk a little bit about what that honor means to you. To be honest with you, not to, 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 uh, to disparage the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but the Songwriters Hall of Fame was much more uh, profoundly important to mm. me as a, as a person than uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Because when you think about the people who are in the American Songwriters Hall of Fame, it's an incredible incredible legacy of American popular music that here again transcends rock and roll. I don't, I don't limit myself to rock and to the rock and roll era as I, I see myself in the long line of musicians from the beginning of time. I don't, 
you know, and I'm not trying to brag or trying to put myself on a pedestal with, you know, with the Giants, but Daryl and I, that's how we view music. We view music as a continuum, right. not as, as just this kind of popular fad that we happen to, you know, pick up a guitar to try to join the band and run off to the circuit. Yeah. Um, we were musicians from the time we were children. Sure. Uh, and, and to be inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame alongside of some of the greats is, to me, one of the, is, is, without a doubt, the most important thing that's yeah. ever happened in terms of my musical career. Yeah. So, hands down, uh, you know, uh, and to win a BMI Icon Award here again with with the type of people who were involved with the, the BMI Icon Award yeah, sure. um, is a very, very prestigious well, with with your 2008 album, 1,000 Miles of Life, you returned to those rich, folk-flavored influences that you kind of cut your teeth on and that were a hallmark of the Hall & Oates sound of the early to mid-70s. It was also your first album that you recorded in Nashville, which happens to be both mine and Scott's hometown. What first drew you there, and what surprised you about uh, about Nashville when you got there? Well, the, my, my first Nashville experience started in the early 90s. Exactly at that time when Daryl and I decided to step out of the 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 eighties, step off the eighties, you know, uh, bandwagon. Um, uh, I worked with the Jerry Lynn Williams down in, in Oklahoma, and uh, Jerry wrote "Pretending" for Eric Clapton. Right. He wrote um, so many great songs. Yeah. Um, and his publisher was Nashville-based. So in let, getting to know his publisher. Um, he said, man, you got to come to Nashville and write some songs up there. And I said, yeah, you know what? That's a great idea. And over the decade of the 90s, I realized that in order to really uh, become accepted in, in the Nashville uh, musicians and songwriter community, you, I needed to really have more than a temporary presence. And just like I, mm. I couldn't really be a visitor. You know, I mean, yeah. my name would get me in the door, but in order to stay at the party, it required a little bit more of a commitment. Yeah. Uh, and as I realized that, I began to spend more and more time in Nashville. So in the early 2000s, uh, I was getting to the point, uh, to, to an age where I started to reflect on mortality and and uh, the seriousness of, of the fact that life is no longer a rehearsal and that um, there there was a limited amount of time on the horizon, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I started writing these songs that were a little deeper and had a lot of... Uh, of that kind of tone to them, and I thought, and I thought back to the old folk days, and I said, you know, the players and the people who will understand these songs and will help me here again serving the song the best will be Nashville Americana bluegrass country players who will really listen to the lyrics and pay attention to them yeah. and make them come alive in a way that perhaps you know regular studio musicians in a different city might not hmm. do. Uh, and uh, really, you know, I began to make friends, and I began to really spend a lot of time in Nashville. Sure. Uh, it, it culminated in 2009 or 2010 when I was recording um, Mississippi Mile. My wife and I uh, had realized that we needed to have a permanent place here, and that's when we got our place here. Um, yeah. So it really, it, it was kind of a slow kind of introduction to the community, and now that I've uh, drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak, <laughs> <laughs> There's no going back. Yeah. Well, around that same time that you sort of in the in the late 2000s really committed to Nashville, so to speak, um, you know, there was kind of this rebirth of uh, of of Hall and Oates. Um, 
the film 500 Days of Summer featured that elaborate dance sequence set to You Make My Dreams, which gave kind of a new life to that song. And, and you saw this resurgence of a new generation of, of younger bands like The Killers and Gym Class Heroes and Death Cab for Cutie uh, championing your music. Or even, you know, I know The Bird and the Bee did a whole album of, of Hollow Notes songs. And you yourself uh, collaborated with, with Ryan Tedder on Stone Cold Love from your most recent album. Not only is Ryan the frontman of, of One Republic, but he's written huge hits like Bleeding Love for Leona Lewis and Halo for Beyonce, uh, Rumor Has It uh, with Adele and, and a ton of others. Um, what do you like about collaborating with, with younger guys and kind of moving into that role of, of mentor or, or elder statesman of pop and rock music? Well, I like to I like the fact that I can bring a, a, a lifetime of experience, and they can bring a youthful energy. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a powerful uh, mix there. Yeah. And um, I like that. And I like I like people who um, who want to who want to try to um, expand their horizons on every level, uh, because that's the kind of person I am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in a 2012 interview with Esquire magazine, you said uh, there's an optimum time for creativity in people. It's the mid-20s to early 30s. You're not responsible. Your hormones are at a peak. You don't have the responsibility of family, and you don't have the responsibility of stuff. Um, You obviously are still making a lot of music. So now that you're in your mid-60s, how do you continue to, to stoke those fires of creativity? I'm in this place that's very unique. Um... I'm in a creative sweet spot that most creative people can only dream of, and very few get to actually uh, uh, attain. And yeah. that's the uh, I'm you know I'm financially independent. I am creatively independent. It's very unique and very rare, and it's not something I take for granted. It's something that I cherish and I I hold very uh, very dear. So yeah. I think about that, and I think to myself, if someone else had this unique opportunity. Would they waste it by mm. sitting around golf, <laughs> or would they try to, to do as much as possible to take advantage of all the hard work that got me to this point? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one one final question, and and we'll let you go. We appreciate your time here, but this is more just uh, just fun because I I um was researching this interview, and I stumbled across a Facebook page called John Oates Mustache, and I found out <laughs> about this animated. Pilot featuring the voice of Dave Attell as your famous uh, facial hair, and I was I was just sort of amused to discover all this. Uh, how do you feel about the fact that your now departed mustache has become a cultural icon unto itself? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just got inducted in the mustache hall. Oh, nice. um, <laughs> the first, the first inaugural class. Uh, so, uh, hey, listen, you know what? <laughs> all I can say is just facial hair, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we always save the most important question for last. So th- thank you for <laughs> storing up the wisdom for that one. Um, but seriously, thank you for spending the time with us today. Uh, really appreciate all your music over the years and um, and you taking the time to share your insights with us here on Songcraft. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was a good interview. 
Thanks again to John Oates for spending some time with us today on Songcraft. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and be sure to visit us at songcraftshow.com to see what we've got coming up. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Sir.